A man I'm excited about today. We've already had a great day, got great prospects for the day ahead, including this very hour when we celebrate the importance, the meaning, and the testimony of baptism. You could probably guess that some of the most enduring memories that I have in what is now over two and a half decades of life as a pastor involve the many baptisms that uh, I have experienced in terms of performing them for others who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. I baptized children. In fact, uh, the greatest baptism memory of my life was baptizing both of my kids when they were eight years old each, respectively. We moved into a new worship center at the church I was pastoring at the time, brand new building. And Whitney, my daughter, was the first person we baptized in that new building. And in 2005, Seth was the last person I baptized in that building as I was closing the door behind me to come here to be your pastor. Great memories. I baptized teenagers, young adults, middle-aged adults, senior adults. I've had some comical baptisms. I've slipped in the baptistry. I've knocked people's heads against fiberglass in the baptistry. Tallest person I ever baptized was six foot nine. Can I have an amen today? Six foot nine. Heaviest person was well over 400 pounds. When I baptized that big boy, I just followed him right down into the wake, right after him. <laughs> it was like hooking a great white shark. He just pulled me right out of the boat. So I've got many great memories. One of the most memorable baptisms involved going to the home of a woman to share the gospel with her. She was in the latter stages of lung cancer. She received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior there in her home. And the next day, I went back with a couple of our deacons and some of her family had gathered and we baptized her in her bathtub and she died just two or three days after that. I'll never forget that as long as I live. So many wonderful memories of the power of the gospel to change human lives. And today we're going to make some more memories together as we give you the opportunity to do something that's clearly the will of God. Sometimes things can be mysterious in terms of Scripture. You don't have to wonder about whether or not it's God's will for you to be baptized if you know him as Lord and Savior. It is. It's God's will. It's clearly God's plan for your life. Baptism is clearly scriptural. Baptism is the opportunity to publicly de declare your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that here in just a minute. Before we do, I want to take the very few minutes that we have this morning and talk to you about baptism, primarily from the perspective of the book of Acts. We've been in a multi-month study of the book of Acts, and you should know that most of the baptisms that you read about in your Bibles come right out of the book of Acts. I mean, aside from Jesus' baptism, virtually every other baptism that we read about in the Bible is contained in this history of the early church called Acts. Some form of the word baptism, baptism, baptized, baptized, is used 25 times in the book of Acts alone. So obviously it's a major component of the life and ministry and mission of the early church. 
So with all of that in mind, let's take a quick survey about the priority of baptism as it's reflected in the book of Acts. And then after you hear what I've got to say and the Holy Spirit grips your heart, I want you to consider coming this morning and letting your pastor baptize you in obedience to Jesus Christ. It's something you will not regret doing. You'll be thankful that you did it. I'll give you five things from Acts about baptism that I want you to write down this morning. Y'all ready to go? Say amen. First of all, baptism is an ordinance of Christ and his church. Baptism is an ordinance of Christ and his church. And by ordinance, I simply mean that it's something that's ordained, which is another way to say it's something that's commanded. Baptism is a commandment. Baptism is an expectation. It's something that Jesus expects his followers to do, not just in the first century era, but it's something that he expects his people to do in an ongoing kind of way. So an ordinance is a commandment. And with respect to baptism, we see that ordinance most obviously expressed in the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ, even before we get to the book of Acts. Jesus said in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then what's the next word? Say it out loud. Baptizing them. This is the first step in disciple making. It's the first step in becoming a disciple or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You become a follower of Christ, then you express that publicly with baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Discipleship is the fundamental purpose of this and every other church that would be a New Testament church. This is what Jesus told us to do, go and make disciples. And then this command to make disciples is qualified in two ways baptizing them and teaching them, equipping them, training them. You baptize them once on the front end of their discipleship journey, but you spend the rest of time, as long as they're alive and breathing, teaching them, training them, helping them to become more like Christ. That's what a disciple is. It's a follower of Jesus who's becoming like Christ over time. And there's no way you can separate your identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ from being baptized as a demonstration of your faith in Jesus Christ. You see that in the early stages of Acts. When Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, right there in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 2, he's got this incredible crowd Jerusalem was teeming with pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, the holy city, to celebrate the feast of the Passover, or not the Passover, Pentecost. And as he has these people before him, as the Holy Spirit has come, in ways that were obvious, you have the gospel being proclaimed, Peter preaches Jesus, and He says at the end of that message in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now that particular statement came in response to a question that had come in the verse before from someone in the audience, what must we do? And Peter's response is clear. You need to repent. 
You need to recognize that you're a sinner, turn from your sins, which is what repentance is, turning from sin, turning to God in order to lead a brand new life. And then following your repentance, Peter says you need to be baptized as a public declaration that Christ has changed your heart and your life, and you're not ashamed to let the world know it. Now, this verse has caused a little bit of controversy, the whole repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, because a lot of people would read that and they would think, well, there you have it. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. You have to be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven, and nothing could be further from the truth. Really, the import of this passage is repent and be baptized, demonstrating the forgiveness of your sins. Not so that your sins could be forgiven, because that would fly into the face of virtually everything that's said from Matthew all the way to Revelation about how a person is saved. Don't you think that if baptism were required for a person to be saved, that it would be all over the Bible? That Jesus would be trumpeting baptism all the time? Jesus has very little to say about baptism in his ministry, almost nothing, except for the fact that he was baptized himself, but he didn't need to be baptized to be saved because he didn't have any sin, amen? He's showing us what disciples who would follow him are supposed to do. No, we repent, and it's through repentance and faith that we're forgiven of sin and brought into the eternal family of God. Baptism is just a picture of that. It's a sign of what Christ has done for us. Salvation is by faith alone, and that leads to a second thing about baptism that we learn in Acts, and that is namely that baptism is a quick response to genuine repentance and faith. When you write down the word quick, I want you to circle it. Because one thing you never see in the Bible is people expressing faith in Christ and then like waiting two years in order to get baptized. In fact, you don't see people waiting two months to get baptized in the book of Acts. It's always a quick response to obvious repentance and faith. The Bible clearly teaches Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. Not a hint that baptism is necessary for salvation. Jesus told the dying thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in where? In paradise. The thief had no opportunity to be baptized. So salvation is by faith alone. Baptism is an outward symbol of that. It's an outward symbol that I've become one with Jesus. Christ has moved into my life. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. Baptism symbolizes that Jesus has taken my sins away. Sometimes we refer to that as having been washed by the blood of Christ. Christ has washed my sins away. And when you're baptized, you identify publicly with that. Look at what Jesus has done for me. That's what you're saying when you're baptized. You identify publicly with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I want you to get this down. We're not baptized in order to be forgiven. We're baptized because we have been forgiven. And if there's one thing that's obvious in the book of Acts is that it would have been unconscionable for any of these early believers to have turned to God in salvation and then somehow hold out on being baptized. You never see that happen in the book of Acts. 
This was their public declaration of allegiance. So when Peter is preaching to the crowd there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he tells them, repent and be baptized, remember, he's talking to a number of people there that were probably part of the rabble that just a few weeks earlier were shouting about Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. And now he's asking them to repudiate that and make a public declaration. I at one time was against Christ vocally, but now I've accepted Christ eternally. So this would have been a big deal for them. And obviously the conviction was so great, these people didn't have a problem doing that. There's a massive response as people step forward and were willing to do exactly what Peter was compelling them to do. Look at Acts 2.41. So those who received his word, those who heard the gospel and received the gospel by faith were what? Say it out loud. Baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I would love to baptize 3,000 people today, but we probably won't. But somehow they managed to pull that off in a way that was remarkable. These were people that heard the gospel, repented of their sins, trusted Christ by faith to save them and to forgive them. Something that's significant I think you ought to notice in Acts is that you never, again, you never see a delay. Baptism, salvation are always, in the book of Acts, it's always two sides of one coin. Salvation, baptism, bang. The gospel's presented, there's a response of faith, followed by baptism almost immediately after the expression of faith. That's what happened, for example, let me give you several examples of that. When Philip left Jerusalem, Philip was a preaching machine, he was a deacon, and he got caught up in the dispersion after the stoning of Stephen, there was a great persecution that was directed primarily between the Greek or toward the Greek-speaking Jews, and many of them had to flee for their life, and Philip was one of them. And he went north and took the gospel into Samaria. And the Bible says in Acts 8 and verse 12, but when they, many of the Samaritans, when they believed, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized When they believed, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon the magician, even Simon the magician himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And just like that, even this lost sorcerer who was neck deep in the occult, surrendered to the gospel message, heard it believed and was baptized, he becomes, Simon does, the first named person who is baptized in the entire book of Acts. Up to this point, they'd all just been groups of people, unnamed. Simon is the first guy, we've got his name. He believed and was baptized. Same thing happened to Paul himself, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church. The Bible says in Acts 9, 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and Saul regained his sight and then he rose and was what? Baptized. You remember the story of Saul on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria in order to extradite 
Christians, Jewish Christians, who were followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ. He was going to bring them back, put them on trial, hope that many of them would die as a result of that. Bright light comes out of the sky, blinds Saul of Tarsus, and he's instructed to go on into Damascus, but he's blind, and he has to be led by the hand like a little child into Damascus where he goes to the home of a Christian brother named Ananias who lived on a street called Straight that runs straight through the city of Damascus. And it's there, I believe, that Ananias explained the gospel to him in a clear and cogent way. And I believe that it was in the house of Ananias that Paul made his response to the gospel. And it's at that point when he responded by faith to the gospel that scales fell from his eyes. And the Bible says, then he rose and was baptized. It's a beautiful picture, and you see that consistently painted. Yet again, how about the conversion experiences of the two in Philippi that we saw just a few weeks ago? where we're told in Acts 16 and 14, one who heard the gospel was a woman named Lydia. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She heard the gospel. She responded to the gospel. And after she was what? Said out loud. Baptized. And her household as well. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay. Now, Luke goes out of his way to say Paul's intention was to go to a synagogue when he got into Philippi for the first time. The only problem was he found there wasn't one. Somehow he found out there were a group of Jews and God-fearing Greeks who gathered by the river to worship on the Sabbath. And so that's where they went, Paul and his missionary team. And so it's likely because he presented the gospel to Lydia right there by the river. All in the world they had to do was walk down into the river. So she was baptized quickly, immediately, right there where she laid down her burden down by the riverside. No, I'm not going to sing it. But that may be where this phrase came from. This one and the passage in the Bible about the Ethiopian eunuch who went and got baptized instantly because water was already there. Same thing happens with the Philippian jailer, Acts 16 and 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not a word about baptism and salvation. Faith. Faith in Christ, you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all who were in his house, verse 33, and he was baptized At once, he and all his family. Circle the word at once or the phrase at once. Now, you remember that in the wake of that earthquake, this comes in the aftermath of a great earthquake. And that guy, I think, was just rattled and in shock out of his mind. He had come within an inch of his life. And he looks at Paul and Silas and asks basically the same question that was asked of Peter. What must I do to be saved? And the team responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He did. 
and he and his family were baptized at once. Can I make a statement here this morning? Are y'all listening to me? Say amen. Amen. Procrastinated obedience is disobedience. You say, well, really, I, no, I'm okay with I'm just waiting a little. No, you're disobedient. And there's always an issue with disobedience when you say you call Jesus Lord. So you confess Christ as Lord, and you treat baptism casually, there's a disconnect there. Procrastinated obedience is disobedience. Once you've trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, you respond quickly. And you demonstrate that your allegiance is to Christ through baptism. A third thing that we learn from the book of Acts is that baptism is by immersion. By immersion in water as a sign of new life. One of the great baptism pictures, a great baptism vignettes that you see in Acts comes in chapter 8, just after Philip had led the Ethiopian state treasurer to faith in Jesus Christ. They were sitting in a covered chariot together. And we're told here in Acts 8 and verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, behold, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they had came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more but went on his way rejoicing. Again, this is another picture, quick response. And that came on the, basically by the response of the Ethiopian himself. It's not really Philip, the preacher, who's saying, behold, here is water. It's the man who was genuinely saved. I've often wondered, how did he even know anything about baptism? Well, Philip had to say something to him about it. Because they surely weren't reading it in Isaiah 53, because it's not in Isaiah 53. So the man had to have some kind of a picture of it that came from the gospel preacher, and without delay, they left the chariot, went down into the water, both of them went down into the water, and then came up out of the water. Now, if all you had needed was a little water, that step is unnecessary. And there are a lot of people who tell you, when it comes to baptism, like the old Brill Cream commercials, a little dab will do you. But it's not really biblical. John the Baptist was always moving his ministry to where there was much water. John chapter 3. There was much water there, so John moved there. Well, why do you need much water if you don't need much water? All Philip would have had to have done was take a cup down there, or even his hands. Stay right there. I'll be right back. I baptize you. That's not what he does. No, they all get wet. They get down into the water, and then they come up out of the water. That's immersion. 
And really, when you think about it, the concept of immersion over and against sprinkling or pouring water or dabbing water on foreheads, as some denominations do, uh, is bound up in the word baptize itself, baptizo in the Greek New Testament, which doesn't mean to sprinkle and it doesn't mean to pour. It means to submerge. That's what the word means. It means to immerse. It means to plunge. It means to dip. We immerse because that's what the word means. The writers would have used a different word if there was a different mode in mind. And aside from that, only immersion can give us this visual picture of the new life that has become ours because of our faith in Jesus Christ. In baptism, there's always a going under the water, which is symbolic of the death and burial of Christ. Can I remind everybody today that when you surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord, there is always a death? You say, well, who dies? You do. Specifically, your old life. Every person who knows Christ as a disciple of Christ has life in two volumes. Volume one is your life before Christ, and the subject of your life before Christ is you. Life's all about you. It's all about yourself. And that old sinful self is the part of you that dies the moment that Christ moves into your life by faith. And when you go down under the water, that's what that symbolizes. My life as a person before Jesus Christ is no more. It's dead. And I'm demonstrating finality by showing you that not only is it dead, it's buried So not only does baptism symbolize the death and the burial of Jesus, it symbolizes the death and the burial of you in terms of your life before Jesus moves in. And then, and you'll be thankful to know this this morning, we don't leave you under the water. Somebody say amen. There's always a going down and there's always a coming out. And the coming out of the water symbolizes, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. And not only his resurrection, it symbolizes the resurrection of you because now volume two of your life commences. And that's what baptism symbolizes. Now is a brand new life. Volume one of my life, dead and buried, it was all about me, but it's now on the shelf. Volume two of my life opens up a brand new chapter And the subject of volume two of my life is no longer me, but as Paul said to the Galatians, Galatians 2.20, Christ who lives in me. Everybody following this morning? So this is what is pictured by immersion that can't be pictured any other way. You can't get any of that by sprinkling. You can't get any of that by pouring. You can't get any of that by dabbing. Only by immersion, which is what the word baptize means. A fourth thing that we see in the book of Acts about baptism is that it's always in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, you see that exact uh, statement rendered many times in Acts. It's not rendered that way every time, but it is many times. You see it, for example, in another wonderful demonstration of salvation and baptism, and that is in the life of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. 
That's Acts chapter 10. You remember Peter, the apostle Peter had a vision in Joppa and uh, the spirit of God gave him the vision of this great sheet which was basically an indication, I want you to go into the home of a Gentile and eat whatever he puts before you because I've declared it clean. But more than eating his food, I want you to preach him some soul food. Somebody say amen. I want you to give him the gospel because something remarkable is getting ready to happen. So Peter goes, he preaches the gospel in the house of Cornelius. Cornelius and his entire household believed. They had faith. They heard the gospel. They trusted the gospel. And I bet you know what happens next. Acts 10 and 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them. He didn't suggest it to them because it's an ordinance of Christ in his church. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's say verse 48 together. Ready? Together. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, typically, we baptize people, and I'm going to do it this way here in just a minute. We baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We baptize people in the name of the triune God because that's how Jesus phrases it in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, that we just read a few moments ago. And every part of the triune God is involved in the salvation of your life. God is the one who made you, and God made you. God the Father made you for a relationship with himself. That was broken by sin, so God the Father sent God the Son in order to die on the cross in your place as your substitute to take the penalty of that sin in your stead. And then when you confess the risen Christ as Savior and Lord, God sends God the Holy Spirit to baptize you, to indwell you, to live within you. Peter says, who can deny these people the right to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Well, every believer receives the Holy Spirit when they're saved. So every part of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within us to guide us, to direct us, to teach us, to give us understanding and wisdom and encouragement. Every part of the Godhead is involved in our salvation in some way. But in the book of Acts, remember, the focus of the preaching, the apostolic preaching of the gospel in the early church was on Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Can I say it this morning? There is no gospel without Jesus Christ because Christ is the gospel. There is no salvation apart from Christ, his person and his work. And so Christ was the focus of their preaching. Christ was the focus of their appeal. And so it was in the name of Christ that they were encouraged encouraging people to be baptized, giving testimony to Jesus. Because everything that's happening here in this critical period of the early church revolves around the person and work of Christ. Everybody tracking with me? Amen. This is why, this is why just going underwater doesn't make you baptized. I mean, it's going underwater intentionally symbolizing something. 
namely what Christ has done for me. So I'm baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then finally, baptism should be understood and observed correctly. That's the last thing we learn about baptism as it's pictured in the book of Acts. Understood and observed correctly. Why do I say that? Well, because sometimes there's confusion when it comes to baptism. As we would say, sometimes it's possible to get the cart before the horse. You know what I'm saying? Because I know a lot of people that get baptized before they ever get around to getting saved. They're baptized because they think the baptism will do something, because they think there's magic in the water, or because somehow they'll have a force field put around them because they went into the water and were baptized. But they've never gotten around to establishing a relationship with Christ by faith. They've never believed the gospel. And if that's the case, and maybe you did that, if that's the case, you've gotten the cart before the horse. In fact, if that's the case, you really didn't get baptized. You just took a bath. It's not baptism where there is no faith. First comes faith, genuine belief and trust. Then comes Can I say it this morning? There will be people in hell who have baptism certificates. Just because you got baptized doesn't mean you're right with the Lord. That's a matter of faith. We're not there yet, but when we get to the 18th chapter of Acts, there's a story of a highly intelligent man named Apollos, who I think is a Greek-speaking Jew. He's a Hellenistic Jew. Very intelligent, well-instructed in the Old Testament scriptures, but had a faulty understanding of baptism. He's like a lot of Jews I know. I know a lot of Jews that know their Old Testament a lot better than Christians do, but they don't believe Jesus. So they're well-schooled in the Word, and that was him I think he did believe in Jesus. Apollos did because he's preaching Jesus. In fact, let's look at what it said. His problem was he had a faulty understanding of baptism. Acts 18 and verse 25, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more what? More accurately. That's right. So he had an understanding of Scripture. It just wasn't a complete understanding of Scripture. And what was faulty in his thinking uh, was his understanding of baptism. And, of course, the big question is, was Apollos properly baptized after that? Well, we don't know. Luke is silent about the matter, and scholars are all over the place debating whether he was or he wasn't. I can tell you this, if a person like that comes to me today and starts questioning baptism at Hillcrest, that guy's getting baptized. I can tell you that because his understanding was the baptism of John the Baptist which was not the baptism of Christ. I think that he was properly baptized after this, and 
The reason I believe that is because of what happens to a group of disciples in Ephesus in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 19. Take a look, Acts 19 and 3. And Paul said, into what then were you baptized? These are disciples in the city of Ephesus. They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, see, they weren't connecting baptism and Christ. They were connecting baptism and repentance, but not baptism and Jesus for repentance. That makes sense? And then it says in verse 5, on hearing this, an accurate and complete understanding on hearing this, they were what? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Apollos was too. It's the same thing. Some of you today are probably like that. You've submitted to some kind of baptism in your past. Maybe you were baptized as an infant without any awareness or understanding of what you're doing. Maybe you're baptized unscripturally. Maybe uh, before you ever even really trusted the Lord. Maybe you followed a friend who was being baptized. And you did it because they did it. Or maybe you were just hyper-emotional and really didn't have a proper theological framework or theological understanding of what it was that you were doing. If that's the case, you need to do like these. And you need to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation. First comes genuine faith, followed by baptism in the name of Christ as a demonstration of what the Lord has done for me. Now, we haven't even looked at every illustration in the book of Acts, but I think you'd agree with me this morning that in the book of Acts, there's just no way that you separate genuine salvation from baptism. We're not baptized in order to be saved. We're baptized because we're saved and because we're not ashamed to publicly declare who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Baptism is a believer's wedding ring. The wedding ring doesn't make you saved, but the wedding ring is a voluntary symbol that you wear proudly because you want everyone to know that you have joined your life together with someone else who has changed your life. And that's what baptism is. The Christian's wedding ring as a sign of my enduring love and affection. And my challenge to you today is to put on the wedding ring and let the world know that Christ is your Lord and you are not ashamed of him. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.